Hello and welcome to the Mobility Podcast, recording live from the Automated Vehicle Symposium in Orlando, Florida. Uh, we're going to be here all week and have an all-star lineup of guests, so make sure to subscribe and check back daily for all the great episodes to come. We're also going to have some great tans by the end of this. Or not. Or not. We're not leaving this room uh, because we have so many great guests. Uh, so I'm your co-host, Pete Gould with Shared Mobility Strategies. And I'm Greg Rogers with Securing America... With Securing America's Future Energy, or SAFE, um, and I will say on behalf of uh, Greg Rodriguez, uh, views are our own. Yes, and today we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Johanna Zmud, uh, the Senior Research Scientist at the Texas Transportation Institute, known as TTIs. Uh, uh, Dr. Zmud is a head of the TTI's mo- Multimodal Planning Division, which is comprised of travel, forecasting, transit mobility, and planning and engagement programs. Uh, Her specific research expertise covers a range of topics from automated and connected vehicle policy to travel behavior analysis, including the influence of changing socio-demographics, proliferation of transportation alternatives to private vehicle ownership, uh, and the impacts of new technology. So uh, her, her research is often focused on closing the gap between changing mobility, technological development, and public policy making activity, which is a very good fit because that's exactly what we've been looking to do here on the podcast. So Dr. Schmutz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Perfect. So I guess to kick it off, tell us a bit about your work uh, that you're doing at TTI uh, to understand the impacts of AVs and and these mobility services. Right. Um, As you alluded to in my biography, I'm a social scientist, so I'm a little unusual in this this, uh, group of people who are out here today who are mostly engineers. And so uh, what I like to do is um, study what I call the social influence on technology. So my colleagues and I at TTI have been looking at the factors that influence acceptance and trust in automated vehicles. And we've been doing this for the last five years. Luckily, we've had uh, funding sources from various uh, sponsors to be able to do that. And now, does that funding come from the public sector or the private sector? Uh, Both. Uh, but primarily from the public sector. I mean, we work for cities. uh, We work for the state of Texas. uh, We've worked for the National Academies and the DOT. But there are some private sector sponsors of that as well. For instance, we're working with Avis Budget Group right now looking at how the... um, Uh, These new technologies will affect the rental car business. And then also we we did a study for Lyft last year um, looking at um, whether or not users of uh, new mobility services like ride hailing would be early adopters of automated vehicles. And it turns out the relationship is very strong. Not only were users of ride hailing services Uh, likely to be early adopters of automated vehicles, but the longer they had been using the ride-hailing service, the stronger their relationship was. That's That's really interesting. Yeah, and we were joking, we could do an entire episode on (laughs) that. Now, you presented uh, on the fascinating topic, again, of public acceptance of AVs. Can you tell us a little bit about your your findings, kind of the Cliff Notes version of the Mm -hmm. presentation for those who weren't able to attend? Sure. Well, um, you know, as a survey researcher, I... um, always take uh, polling results and survey results with a little grain of sand because I'm curious about how they were done. But one of the two easy questions I always ask is, uh, which people are we talking about? Do the results cover? And which type of level of vehicles are the results talking about? Because there are differences across those. So in terms of the cliff notes of what people really think about 
uh, self-driving vehicles. Trust is a big issue. It's mm -hmm. a recurring issue. And part of the reason why there are trust issues is because the technology is so new. Um, people equate the computer in a car to their smartphone or their laptop, and so they know they have uh, glitches with that, and so they worry about software glitches in their cars. Uh, they also worry that the technology is not foolproof uh, because they've experienced these other technologies, and so they want to make sure they can take over it at any time. And finally, people are um, really concerned that the computers really can't deal with unexpected situation. Will it react fast enough if a child runs into the road, for instance? And so, um, <clears throat> and a lot of the knowledge that people get about self-driving vehicle is really based on what they read in the media. And we know that the media sometimes is uh, not hype-free, but hype-full. Right. And so, uh, so they're, they're the responses to our survey questions or their, our polling uh, questions really uh, tr uh, carry through these mis this misunderstanding or the misinformation that they might have gotten from the media. Okay. Uh, secondly, um, people are aware that the higher level vehicles at higher level of automation really do bring safety benefits. Uh, they know that, they sort of trust in those safety benefits, but there is a greater acceptance of a level four vehicle, which is operating in a constrained environment and uh, operational dom uh, design domain, mm -hmm. so it's constrained, yeah. uh, than a level five that can operate anytime, anywhere. A lot of the concepts for a level five vehicle really are vehicles without a steering wheel or without an accelerator or brake pe pedal, and that makes people very nervous. Is um, that they just doubt we're ever going to get to level five? Or no, is it, they it just feels better to say within these geofencing, you can, yeah, you're good on that? Right, because it's constrained. And so it is, um, uh, it feels safer to people. And also, uh, you know, the real issue with level five is people don't like the thought of losing control of the vehicle. Right. They, the, the again, the technology is so new that they don't feel it can handle all situations yet. Mm -hmm. And so they want to be able to take over control. Like uh, one person in an interview that we did said, um, what if the vehicle does something that I don't think is safe? I want to be able to take over control. Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, I suppose that folks would want to be able to have a vehicle with a steering wheel still, even if Right. Uh, yeah, they would want to have a vehicle with a steering wheel. They want to be able to override the, the computer system or the sensors that are on board. Um, and it's interesting because one of the things we found in a series of research studies that we do, we've done is that people don't want to own, they don't want to own these as private vehicles yet. That may be something that they would feel more comfortable with in the future, but right now they're more comfortable using them as uh, a shuttle, like a low-speed shuttle, mm -hmm. which is what a lot of the pilots are right now, or as a ride-hailing vehicle. Um, again, they feel like the ride-hailing vehicle would operate in a constrained environment, and what they've seen is these ride-hailing vehicles, pilots with um, safety drivers. Um, so they 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 want to experience uh, the vehicles first before they pay to own one. I was going to say, it's that, that from the sound of what you're saying that, it's not there's a massive change and no one's getting driver's licenses anymore because everyone wants to share everything and it to be electric and, and all that. As much as it is 
if I was able to rent the fancy new TV until prices come down and mm-hmm, and right. there's enough shows, you know, yeah. that kind of a thing. That's exactly that there's still it. the intent at the end that once these things are ready, I'll probably buy and and I can afford it, then I'll buy one. Yeah, I mean, I think people would because uh, one of the things that um, I read in some recent data, industry data, is that um, the number one factor that people, and this includes millennials who people think aren't buying cars, but actually their car purchasing is increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the number one Probably factor... Probably they're 40 now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, this is current millennials. Yeah. Uh, but um, but uh, the number one factor is the technology in the car. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cox Automotive did a study last year, and they found that the technology in the car was more important than brand or model. It's huh. what is the technology that's in that car? Meaning the driving technology or yeah. the, the touchscreen? Well, the touchscreen. All of the technology. Apple Yeah. So I think, you know, the idea that, you know, no one's going to be owning their own car in 10 years, I don't think that's going to happen because I do think that people, just like they like having their own smartphone or their own laptop or their own media center, they're going to want to have their own traveling environment with their own media in there and their own technology. Right. And so... what I always find interesting about surveys um, mm-hmm. is that you know all these surveys come out saying X percent of people believe in autonomous vehicles, X percent do not, and it seems like there's a standard deviation of about fifty percent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's t- you, you get both sides regularly. Um, how would you respond to folks who are sort of skeptical of the survey results that um, tend to be collected and sort of gauging public perception? Right. I think um, you know we tend to forget that this is a new this is a new technology. I mean, we talk about it actually it doesn't as, really <laughs> exist yet. It doesn't actually really. <laughs> I mean, exist I think that's yet. the point. It's like, what are <laughs> yeah. like? Do you approve yeah. or disapprove of magic flying exactly or flying cars? Yeah. So we're asking those types of questions of yeah. people, mm-hmm. and we forget that, especially those people who are doing the surveys. A lot of the time, they're they're in, enmeshed in the in this dialogue about self-driving vehicles. But really, few respondents to those surveys or polls have actually interacted with AVs. And so what happens is that leads to them either underestimating or overestimating their value, and that's what we see in those survey results. Mm -hmm. And so how much, um, how, whenever you're crafting these, um, do the questions give enough background about the potential benefits of AVs and give them some of the knowledge that they you feel like maybe they should have or they might have in the future? Is it enough or is it just, of a pushball? Or, <laughs> right. or, is it, or is it just a point blank <laughs> asking what their opinion is? Right. No, I think, uh, well, we've tried because we realized early on that this is new and people haven't mm. experienced them yet. And we wanted people to be answering the questions from some level of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we don't give benefits and we don't give <laughs> concerns because that would be biasing. But um, what we do do is we embed in all of our surveys an educational component. Mm-hmm. Um, believe it or not, we use uh, we find the best YouTube video that we can, and we embed a link into our online survey that uh-huh. goes through. We have I can recommend some. Yeah, but um, love to see them. <laughs> <laughs> but we um, that both explain and depict the levels of automation. And I think we're doing a pretty good job because our survey results, to me, have some, uh, you know, uh, sniff test kind of realities that make sense. Like, for instance, we were looking, I was looking at some survey data that we just finished, a survey in Frisco, Texas, and we asked people their 
the car level of automation of car they would be most comfortable owning or using and the one that they would consider more most safe mm-hmm. and basically preventing a crash and be among level two level three level four and level five the level that received the lowest ratings was level three and so if, they caught it so they caught it <laughs> right. that the transition from the car back to the human is a safety risk mm-hmm. and they caught it that's so i felt really and that's good not about the kind that. of one that you would like oh, i have no idea what i'm doing i'll just pick the middle <laughs> <Yeah>. one <laughs> yeah. pick, the, pick yeah. one of the extremes like yeah. definitely two or five mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah so that I, I looked at that data and i said wow that's pretty good we'll have yeah. to use that mm. youtube video again <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And now, and are you? Because is there, you know, is there a horse race number on this that of accept, you know, approve, disapprove type thing, or is it more we're looking for trends? We're looking for trends. I think that um, one of the things I've noticed in the last five years of tracking this is that. Um, at first you saw as people were getting more knowledgeable because they were reading in the in the media, they were learning more, they were becoming more aware, that um, trust was going up, fear was going down. Um, but then it was almost like you reach a certain level of knowledge where you know too much, mm-hmm. and then your trust starts going down and your fear starts going up. And so what I think is really important uh, in terms of public opinion is really doing this tracking of trends. Like if you just pick any one point in time right now, you probably will not realistically measure what uh, people's opinions yesterday or people's opinions tomorrow because of the fact that this technology is changing, society is changing, society is aging. We have all these things going on at the same time, so the best we can do is really track and monitor. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in your research, I mean, we, we've had quite a busy past year and a half in autonomous vehicles, um, including, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. the tragic incident with Elaine Herzberg. Um, who was killed by a self-driving Uber um, last March. Um, what was sort of the public perception backlash that you saw following mm-hmm. that? Hey, can we look at a tr- uh, chart and, and I, I can draw the line of where last March happened? Right, you really can. And the best source for that is AAA. They've been doing surveys on uh, uh, where they ask uh, the percentage of US drivers who would be afraid to ride in a self-driving car. And uh, started in 2016, ended uh, just recently in 2019. And you see a trend where uh, towards the end of 2017, um, fear of riding in a self-driving vehicle um, decreases from about 78% to 63%, which is the lowest it is. So 63% of the Americans that they surveyed uh, say they're afraid of riding in a self-driving car. Then we have spring of 2018 when the accident happens, and you see uh, the number go in- increasing. So it goes from 63% back up to 74% wow. right after that. And it's, it's been constant. It's, it's stayed there ever since. Um, but one of the most important things I think about that, you know, sort of masked by the aggregate data, is that within certain population groups, there was a a more visceral reaction. So millennials, for instance, in uh, December of 2017, 49% of millennials said they would be afraid to ride in a self-driving car. After that accident happened, it increased 15 percentage points to 64%. It was the largest increase among any age group. Fascinating. All right, so 
speaking to the kind of broader, um, you know, your broader role in the research and all of this, how you know, we hear a lot about how cities and the other public agencies really need this data from tech companies um, to plan. You know, not just AVs, but obviously TNCs, scooters, all of that. Can you can you help us in, in understanding kind of how can that data actually get incorporated into a long term plan? You know, from mm-hmm. an MPO or a state DOT or the cities, because that the planning side of it is often what gets kind of put out there as this is why we really need it, not mm-hmm. a momentarily enforcement thing. So I'm curious, what can actually be used on that? Right. Um, well. People are really interested in um, a couple things. One, um, origin and destination flows, because you want to know where, where are people coming from and going to, and what are the volumes for those You know, throughout a metro region, for instance. You're also interested in the modes that people used. So I want to know, uh, within those volumes of going from here to there, how many people are driving their cars, how many are doing it alone, how many people are uh, taking public transit, all of that is very important because it's what I use to plan my infrastructure. And right now we know that there's a lot of, I call it a, um, with a plethora of options. Um, What we see is that people are becoming polygamous in their mode use. It (laughs) used to be that you know, 10 years ago even, you would say, well, we, would, we don't even have to do a survey because we know everyone's going to drive alone. Right. But now you can't really say that, and you really need to be monitoring and measuring how, what modes are you, people are using. And my experience and the research that I've been doing is that people are making their decisions, especially in urban areas. I mean, where we see the big changes is in urban areas. I know we need to think about rural, but it's urban. But um, people make their mode choice decision in the situation, in the moment. They're they're at, um, it's 11 a.m., I want to go to brunch, this is D.C., and how am I going to get there, where am I going to go, I'm going to walk or I'm going to Uber, depending on how far away it is. Whereas before, I mean, people, you knew pretty much how you were going to travel. You don't wait until right before you leave to decide what mode you're going to take. Um, yeah, it's, that's absolutely true. Um, <laughs> so I guess in, in wake of that and just seeing those changes in the past 10 years, um, there's whenever there's you're making a you know a 20 year regional plan for example, um, how would you sort of how do you how can you even start to address this with all these new changes in uh, technology and AVs coming or not coming between now and then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, two quick answers to that. The first is that I think agencies have to be more flexible in their planning. There's a planning paradigm out there called adaptive planning where you don't make your 20-year plan or, or you do make your 20-year plan but you are flexible and ready to adapt it as you go along and as you learn more about life what life is really going to be like 20 years from now mm-hmm. so that adaptive planning is something that virtually no agencies here in the US do uh, in Europe there's a couple uh, cities that are starting to do it especially in the context of mobility as a service you know trying to see how demand builds for something like that the other uh, thing I would mention is that I just finished uh, a study for the National Academies where we really looked at how you could build in AV and CV technologies into regional modeling, modeling planning and tools mm-hmm. and basically um, identified 
small changes to the typical travel demand travel um, models that people could make um, to include some of these new modes. So maybe you, you include a mode that maybe AVs, um, CV is hard to include as a mode, but AV <clears throat> as part of the mode choice um, options. And, what, and where are they getting data today to do that? <laughs> you know, for, especially at least with a personally owned vehicle, are they getting any data? You mean? Um, they being planners. Uh-huh, connected vehicle data? I mean, I'm not sure what data. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, not sure no, what I data just, you know, you're talking about. The telematics about. within a, most vehicles <clears throat> oh. today, is that a, at all getting fed in there? Uh, not really. Um, I did a study a little while ago that looked at the question of who owns the data from connected cars, and we looked at it from the perspective of OEMs, um, the public agencies, and then the data aggregators like an NREX. Mm -hmm. And what do you think? They all thought they owned the data. <laughs> so, um, but they're not all getting the data. Like the public agencies really were wanting the data, not really getting it. The OEMs were the really the people that were having greatest access to the data. Mm -hmm. They th saw themselves as the stewards of the data. The data really belonged to the car owner, but they were, um, oh, they were the had oversight over the data for the car owner. And so if you, as a public agency, wanted access to the data, you needed to go to the OEM. Or if you were <coughs> an aggregator who wanted to pay them, yeah, you Yeah, go to, to the OEM. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think it's a, it's a <clears throat> very tricky question. Um, I think the public agencies have learned that if they could have access to that, I mean, I think there, there are data sharing models that are out there that are starting to be out there. And so what, uh, you know, the private sector and the public sector have to learn about what, how can you create a win-win situation? Mm -hmm. So how do you share data that each of you has that can benefit? Um, so uh, what are you hoping to take away from AVS uh, this year? Or what do you think that others should be taking away? Uh, which could be the same question or absolutely different. Well, every time I come here, I've, I've um, be, been coming to AVS since the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and every year I learn a little bit more. Like yesterday, I was uh, in a session on um, consumer perceptions of uh, lower levels of automated technologies, mm -hmm. you know, level one and level two. And the reason why that's important is because um, if we really want to know about how people feel about higher levels, we need to know what how they're now using and understanding the lower levels because they exist on the road today. The higher levels don't, so that's something we can study. And there was <clears throat> a lot of uh, new information that I uh, gleaned from from that session. One is something that I think a lot of people may not know is that one of the biggest barriers to consumers understanding the technology that is in their vehicle today is the naming conventions mm. of that. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many, the OEMs, you know, name the technology based on, for marketing purposes. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, there are 40 different terms for automated right. emergency braking or something like that. So I think, you know, every time I come to ABS, I learn a little bit more and I take it back. In fact, um, I'm going to be using some of this uh, information that I learned about lower levels and people's levels of understanding and barriers to that and build it into my next surveys. That's what I do. Very cool. 
Very nice. Well, they, well uh, Yana, this has been this has been great, and we really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to to having you back later, so we can kind of check in on uh, on, on how the polling's looking for, for the industry. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can, can I just do one little last Absolutely. policy oh, plug? Policy plug. Pilots are important. We need to have those public road um, pilots. They aid in knowledge level building and accepted acceptance building of the public. And they also help educate the public as to the capabilities of the technologies that are in their vehicles now. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, so, Johanna, um, where can uh, folks go? Are you on Twitter, or how can they learn more about you and your work? Uh, TTI uh, has a Twitter account. Um, I, also, TTI has um, all sorts of links and things to my work. I am on LinkedIn, and I post a lot on, on LinkedIn. So there's if someone wants to friend me, uh, they will have access to all my new research when it comes out. Great. Very nice. Awesome. Well, we'll uh, put that in the show notes. Okay. Uh, Pete, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sharedmobilityS. And you can find me um, at A.V. Gregor and uh, the Mobility Podcast at Mobility Podcast. Also check out our shiny website, mobilitypodcast.com. All right. Well, this has been great. And uh, as we said, uh, stick around. We've got a lot more episodes coming from uh, the Automated Vehicle Symposium here in Orlando.